Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure and delight to be with you. Thank you for that warm welcome, Chad. Um, and uh, I hope I can live up to it. I fear I won't. Um, please don't distract, be too distracted by the, uh, by the accent. Um, this is how you'd all talk if you hadn't decided to leave us. So, um, <laughs> You've got nobody to blame but yourselves. Um, so, uh, let's, uh, let's get into uh, God's Word and uh, open your Bibles to 1 Peter. Sorry, 1 Peter, I think you say. Uh, 1 Peter, we say, where I come, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Um, and uh, as I come to uh, read God's Word, let me uh, open in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is with uh, great joy and uh, delight that we come to you as we open your word, knowing, Lord, that uh, this is you, uh, this is your voice, um, Lord, that um, when we read your word, we hear you preaching, and we thank you, Father, for your glorious condescension that uh, comes to us, um, and uh, Lord, blesses us and is a means of grace to us. Uh, thank you that this is the sword of the Spirit. And Father, I pray that you'll help me to teach your word well and faithfully. Lord, help me to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Help us all, Lord, speaker and hearer alike, to have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And Lord, please, uh, both in our words and in our lives, may we make much of Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm going to read from uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, uh, through to chapter 2, verse 10. And then I'll do a bit of an orientation of uh, 1 Peter, and then get into looking at this in three sections. Um, obviously, the section begins with the word, therefore, uh, which moves us backwards to the opening verses, so... Uh, this is very much set in a particular context. But in the light of everything Peter has just written about uh, the living hope into which we've been born again, he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this 
word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they, do, they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are, now, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you notice, this is certainly very obvious from where I come from, uh, a long way from here, but I'm pretty sure you must have noticed yourselves that Christians, evangelical Christians, such as, as here, are no longer the in crowd. We're no longer the kind of people that people claim they want to belong to. We're no longer the people that people want to listen to. We are a marginalized people. I don't know if you've noticed that, but if you have or you haven't, it is actually true. And I'm not saying that because I'm a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I'm telling you that because all the evidence points unequivocally and overwhelmingly in that direction. You see, we as Christians in this world, at this moment in time, in this culture, in American culture, at this moment in time, are the marginalized. We are the despised. Once upon a time, Christianity was acceptable. Kind of everybody wanted to be a Christian or at least align themselves to Christianity identify themselves as Christians. So once upon a time, Christianity was acceptable, but then things changed, and, and Christianity from being acceptable became ridiculous or laughable. It just became something that people tolerated, but actually was uh, uh, something of ridicule. But what is true of us now is that Christianity is reprehensible. Christianity in this culture, Western culture, in this point of the 21st century, is now officially immoral. I don't don't know if you remember or know that uh, in the inauguration ceremony of uh, President Obama, uh, at the beginning of his second term of office, uh, Louis Giglio, who's a pastor from Atlanta in Georgia, was scheduled to pray at that inauguration ceremony. But At relatively short notice, he was pulled from the platform. The reason? 
because some people had found a sermon that he'd preached some 15 years previously in which he had identified homosexuality, the practice of homosexuality, as a sin. And therefore, in this world now, he was, he was inappropriate as a platform speaker, as somebody to pray at the inauguration of President Obama. And the White House conceded that pressure, and he was pulled from the platform. You see, Christianity is now immoral, at least historic, confessional, evangelical, orthodox Christianity is now immoral. It is just the way that it is. Now, that may sound like a bad thing, particularly for you as a country, because, because my history, our history, is really quite different than yours. We've been living like this for a very long time. We've been living on the edges of society and feeling, as it were, uncomfortable there for, for generations. But for you, it's a relatively recent phenomenon. But you're catching up very quickly. And I, therefore, I know that it is disconcerting, and I know that it may be like, feel like it's a bad thing. But here's my contention. I think it's far from the case. My contention is it is actually a very good thing. The challenge for us now is not how we manage to live somehow on the margins of society, how we manage to keep functioning on the margins of society, but how we manage to thrive on the margins of society. Because biblically, the best position from which to impact the center is from the margins. The best position to impact the center is from the margins. Because historically, if the church comes, goes to the center, then always, inevitably, it becomes corrupt. But from the margins, it can retain, by God's grace, a purity and a dynamism that enables it to impact the center in profound ways. And we see that very clearly from this book written by the Apostle Peter. So, as I said, I'm going to be looking at uh, verses 13 of 1 to uh, verse 10 of, of chapter 2. But I want to just look at one phrase, an identifying phrase, right at the beginning of the letter. Look at what Peter says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And I'm just going to pause there for a while before we get into the text later on to orientate yourself so you understand exactly the context that he's writing into. Look at the first one. He calls them elect, the elect exiles or elect or chosen is another word that is used. Now anyone who knows our Old Testament at all will know that this is a pregnant phrase. It is full of profound meaning and significance. Let me just cite one verse from you. You don't need to turn to it. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 14 and verse 2. This is what uh, Moses says. As the people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness for a generation, they're about to go into the promised land. He says to them, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples of the, on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Now, that was intended to give the Israelites a sense of privilege and a sense of amazement. Are you really serious, Moses? Out of all the nations of the earth, God has chosen us, that we are God's elect. 
And what they had, what, the reason why they were that special nation was nothing to do with them, nothing to do with who they were, nothing to do with what they'd done. It was all to do with who God was and what He'd done. He'd chosen them sovereignly, supernaturally, for no other reason than out of the counsel of His own will. He saw nothing about them that was beautiful, attractive, becoming, winsome, compelling. It was purely out of the sovereign choice, his own sovereign choice. They belonged to this God. They were his, and that made them a distinctive, standout nation. But they were chosen for a purpose. And what Moses said to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land recalled something that he'd said to them a generation before as they stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. You'll read about it in Exodus 19. Immediately before the giving of the law, particularly the Ten Commandments. And this is what Moses said. Out of all the nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, this doctrine of election that Peter was citing here particularly in the first instance of Israel as a nation, but now of the church, it was never intended as an indulgence. It was always intended to encourage an obedient and, and an eager response from the people. Well, because we're chosen, what are we chosen for? We're chosen to be God's people. Why are we chosen? So that we might be a kingdom of priests. So that we might be a means of blessing to the nations. That's what Peter's reminding them. And he says, you, just like Israel, you church here, and he's writing to small, scattered groups of Christians around uh, what is now Turkey. And to each of these small, scattered groups, these local churches, he's saying to them, you're small, you're insignificant, you're irrelevant, we'll come back to that in a moment, but you are elect. God has chosen you. And he's chosen you so that he might bless the nations through you. So he's giving them an unrivaled status. He's giving them an unparalleled purpose. This is who you are. Whatever, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances, you will be the means by which God will display his glory to the world. You can see how significant that is to the church on the margins of society, can't you? The society has rejected us, but we're elect. But that's not for our own indulgence, that is for God's own glory. But look else, Look what else he goes on to say. Elect exiles of the dispersion. Strangers is another way of putting it. Now he mentions, doesn't he, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And this, these incorporate, incorporate a vast tract of land, a significant part on the edges of the Roman Empire. And scattered throughout these regions were these groups of Christians. Now, to look at these groups of Christians, there would have been nothing particularly remarkable about them, would there? Just as there is nothing particularly remarkable about you, Lord, as I'm looking out on you. That's not meant to be disparaging. There's no insult at all intended. I know every, because I have an English accent, everything I sounds, it sounds like it's meant to be an insult. But it isn't, really. <laughs> it's just a cultural thing. So... 
just like you are pretty much like everybody else out there in this city of Bakersfield, so it was with these Christians scattered around. They'd have looked like most other people. They'd have eaten what most other people ate. And they would have gone about their business pretty much as most other people went about their business. But they didn't belong there. Wherever it was that they were placed, they didn't belong there. They were exiles. They were a different kind of people. It wasn't only that they had a different identity. They had a different kind of identity. They were neither, in the first instance, Jew nor Gentile. They belonged to a third race, namely Christian, the people of God. This word stranger or Exile is sometimes translated alien. And because that word conjures, conjures up images of other life forms, then it's not entirely inappropriate. Peter calls these Christians, these weak, beleaguered, pathetic, marginalized, small bands of Christians scattered around this vast tract of land, he calls for them to be this new community of the elect exiles. And if we want to thrive on the margins of society, that's what we have to understand ourselves as in the first instance, that we are elect exiles. We don't belong here. We really don't. Last year, I had the, uh, the joy of being in the United States on Independence Day. Um, now, for a Brit, obviously, that's kind of could be quite significant because everybody's celebrating getting rid of you, aren't they? <laughs> so, so you kind of just feel a little bit kind of awkward being around like you're, you're intruding on somebody's party. You're, you're one of those kind of unwelcome relatives that, that people kind of say, oh, it's nice to see you. Then they talk about you behind their, their, their hands. Well, actually, it shouldn't bother me at all, should it? Because my primary identity isn't that I'm English. My primary identity is that I'm in Christ. My primary identity is that I am an elect exile. And your primary identity, even on Independence Day, shouldn't be that you're American. It should be that you're in Christ. Because that trumps everything. Excuse the use of that word here. <laughs> Didn't occur to me how inappropriate it was till I just said it, but I get it. So it, it really does, doesn't it? It's better than being American, the fact that we're in Christ. It's glorious. And that's what was so important for these Christians scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Peter is saying to them, no, you're elect of God, you're chosen, and you're an exile. He's dispersed you. Why? Because that's his mission strategy so that he might display his glory around the world. The best way to do that is to scatter groups of Christians, litter churches all over the world, because that way the world gets to see what a great God God is, what a great King, King Jesus is. So the primary means of helping us to live well on the margins of society, which is where we are now, is by being an alternative society by seeing ourselves as elect exiles, chosen by God, scattered around among the nations so that we might be a means of grace to the world. That's why it's good news. 
Because when you're at the center of society, you don't see it like that. Your vision becomes, our vision becomes obscured by the trappings of success, by the trappings of power, by the trappings of respectability. We can't see life for what it really is. We don't see ourselves as the elect exiles. We see ourselves very much at home. And we see ourselves primarily by our, by, by, by our own race or nation. But not for the people of God. So this time of disconcertion, this time of discombobulation, this time of dispersal is a good time for the church. So let's look at these uh, three sections under three headings. A new life through a fruitful word. And that will be the longest point just to orientate you as we go through it. Secondly, a new building on a firm foundation, verses uh, 4 to 8 of chapter 2. And then finally, a new identity for a glorious end. So that's a new life through a fruitful word, a new identity on a firm foundation, and a new, a new building on a firm foundation, and a new identity for a glorious end. So let's have a look at verses 22 uh, through to verse, chapter 2, verse 3. Now, this section has a number of very important imperatives or commands where Peter gives them very clear instructions. But none of them quite as important as what he says in verse 16, where he quotes from the book of Leviticus, where God says through his uh, servant Moses, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Leviticus, but it seems a rather obscure book for us living in the context that we live in. But actually, it's, it's all about God creating an alternative community. God creating a distinctive community. God creating a standout kind of community. That's what the book of Leviticus is about. He's saying to them, as you go into the promised land, and as you live among the nations that are there, that are pagan nations... Nations where there is immorality is rife, where they worship other gods. As you live there, I want you to be distinctive in every single area of your life, uh, both corporately and individually. And that's what the book of Leviticus is about. And the core component of that is this command here in chapter 16 of Leviticus, namely, you shall be holy as I am holy. And what is fascinating about the book of Leviticus is the way it recognizes this creative interplay between what happens at the shrine when we worship God as his people and what happens on the street. And for the people of God, these two are inseparably connected to one another. So Israel was to be distinctive because of how they worshipped at the shrine in the first instance. But then that would determine how they worshipped in their lives on the streets in the second consequential instance. They were to be distinctive and stand out, not only in their worship, which was very different from the pagans around them, but also in their work. Individually, corporately, in socially, privately, religiously, commercially. They were to be a distinctive people because that's what it means to be holy. There is no such thing as restricted holiness. Holiness is something that cannot be compartmentalized. You can't say, okay, I'm holy on a Sunday morning when I meet with the church. But the rest of the time, 
Well, I do pretty much my own thing. That's not holiness. That's hypocrisy. And God has no time for hypocrisy. Holiness that reflects God's character knows no boundaries because God's sovereign rule knows no boundaries. Holiness defines our friendships, it defines our marriages, it defines our relationships, it defines our work, it defines our leisure, it defines our finances, it defines our politics. Holiness is as much about who you are on a Monday morning as it is about what you do on a Sunday morning in this meeting when you meet together. It's about as much, it's as much about what kind of boss you are or employee you are or employee as you are or neighbor you are as to how well you sing the latest worship song. Holiness is as much about what you do holding a steering wheel as it is when you're holding a Bible. And that's a shock to some of us, isn't it? (laughs) Holiness is as much about your sex life as it is about sharing the gospel with the person sitting next to you on the train. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about there is no sex outside of marriage kind of holiness. I am talking about that, but holiness is not merely about the things that you don't do. It's about the things that you do do and how you do them. That means that holiness sees a bedroom as its legitimate turf. Be holy as I am holy is going to make you a better lover as surely as it is going to make you a better church leader. So Peter is writing to a group of, Christian, group of people who, by definition, have believed the gospel. And it's that gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who lived, who died, was crucified and rose again, ascends and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming back again. That gospel and our response to that gospel of repentance and faith is what sets us apart. It's that that makes us holy. It's that that creates us as a people who are a standout, distinctive kind of people. Holiness is a work that only the gospel can perform. And in Christ, we are holy. So Peter is saying to them, be who you are. Holiness isn't something that we have to kind of grit our teeth and summon our energy, resolve to to kind of do against all the odds. No, holiness is about being who we are in Christ, being who we're called to be. And we'll see that in a moment, but... I want you to notice how Peter primarily understands holiness here. Look at what he goes on in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, okay, having been made holy by the gospel through believing the gospel, look at what he says there. For a sincere brotherly love. Now, how we understand that word for is, 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 is a, a question of, of exegesis. But I think that it's, it's almost certain that the weight is the fact that Peter is saying, this is what you've been saved for. 
This is why you've been saved for sincere brotherly love. Because Peter is about seeing communities of holiness created as they're scattered among the nations so that they might be a means of grace to the world around them. Holiness is that which makes them stand out and distinctive. And their love for one another is the very epicenter of that distinctiveness. Love one for one another is the purpose of our salvation. That's why we're saved. Loving one another from a sincere brotherly love that comes from undiluted affection from one another out of a pure heart is that which puts the gospel on display. Because it's only the gospel that can produce this kind of love that Peter is referring to. Sincere brotherly love, Peter says, is integral to our salvation. It's an essential aspect of our salvation. It's central to our salvation. It's vital to what God is doing in saving us. Because that's how we're a standout community. In the economy of God's kingdom, mutual love and sincere brotherly affection is what sets us apart from the world. Now, why is that so important? Because it's through love for one another that we show show we're his disciples. Jesus himself said that, didn't he? It's by our love for one another that we demonstrate the power of the gospel to transform. You see, we're all made to be lovers. Lovers of God and lovers of others. But in our sin, we turn in on ourselves and we love ourselves. So everyone is a lover. It's just the object of that love that is different. In Christ, we're restored to be the lovers of God and others that he made us to be. And and our self-love, where that is that we just love ourselves and those that are like us and those that like us, That love is broken. That self-love is defeated. It is crushed. It is diminished. It is diffused so that we gloriously love God and one another. So how can Peter command them to do that? Well, look at what he goes on to say in verse 23. Since you have been born again, it's only those that have been born again who can love one another with this sincere brotherly love or love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Because it takes a whole new creation to do it. It takes a whole rebirth to do it. It's not just a modification issue. It's a glorious transformation issue. It's not merely a reminder issue. It's a glorious renewal issue. You see, we're new creatures in Christ, aren't we? We're this new breed, and loving one another deeply from the pure heart is what this new breed does. Becoming a Christian isn't simply a decision that you make. Look at verse 23. You are born not of perishable, but of imperishable. There is something gloriously different, not only that, that qualitative, not only quantitatively different, but qualitatively different about who we are. And this Christian community that this world has marginalized is actually more durable and substantial than any other part of society. And that makes Peter's instructions in the first part of chapter 2 all the more pressing, aren't they? And pertinent to you as a church. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. 
You see, all those are vices which undermine this new community, that will destroy this new community, that will, as it were, smother this new community so that there is nothing different about it from anywhere else in the world. You will just be like everybody else if you're characterized by malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Whereas if you're characterized by a sincere brotherly love where you, as Peter says back there, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, that will make you distinctive. So how do we, how do we avoid malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander? Gritted teeth, extra effort? Well, in my experience, those strategies are about as useful as rosary beads to a Baptist. (laughs) But what Peter does really is quite exquisite. He takes us back to the gospel. Look at verse 22. The gospel is the truth to which we've been obedient. Then look at verse 23. The gospel, the good news as it is in Christ Jesus, who lived our life, died our death, rose again, ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father to return again. The gospel is a living word of God, verse 23, and it is the pure spiritual milk that causes us to grow up to into the Lord. In other words, the gospel word is the word that saves us and it is the word that sanctifies us. The gospel is the truth that, that saves and sustains us to be this alternative community of love and mutual affection because that is what it means to be holy. That's amazing. Be holy even as I am holy. And how is that going to display itself most magnificently here? By being the church of, uh, that, that, that is defined, distinguished by your love for one another. Do you love one another, church? I don't mean do you have nice feelings about one another. I don't mean do you smile nicely to one another when you turn up all nicely suited and, 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 and shiny and brushed teeth on a Sunday morning. I mean, do you love one another in the messy stuff of life? Do you love one another in just the ordinary routine of daily existence? Do you love one another in such a way and in such a context that other people can see it? Because if they they can't, then it's not this kind of love that Peter's talking about. And it's not that kind of love that Jesus spoke about. Because he said... Everybody will know you, my disciples, that you love one another. There is something that is just irrefutable about it, so clearly obvious about it. See how these Christians love one another. And it's interesting that in the second century, one of the complaints about Christians from from pagan uh, rulers was that Christians were so annoying because they loved one another to such an extent. See how they love one another. It was was. A a note of frustration and irritation. But that should be true of us. Is that true of us as a church? That should be our prayer. Lord, help us to love one another from a pure heart. Let us to be filled with a real affection for one another. Let us be the family of God together so that we're there for one another. We're there with one another. We rejoice together, celebrate together together. Practice rites of passage together. 
that we hang out together, we holiday together, we repair our homes together, we mow our lawns together, we go shopping together, because that's what the people of God do. They just do it together. And together they put the gospel on display because it's that and only that. It's Jesus and only Jesus through the power of the Spirit that has transformed us from lovers of self to lovers of God and others. That's how we're going to be a distinctive community. That's how we're going to thrive well on the margins of this corrupt society, culture in which we live. And here's a bit of good news for you. It doesn't matter whether it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump that is elected president. That's not going to damage one bit your opportunity to do this. I know that neither of those, from all the Christians I've spoken to in America, and I've spoken to many of them, I haven't yet found one who says, yep, that's my man, or that's my, that, that, that's my vote. I'm worrying about what's going to happen in November. But all it means is that's just another opportunity to be this. Put your hope in this, and in God's purpose for the church. I told you that was my longest point. Let's go to my second one. A new building on a firm foundation. Verses 4 to 8. You see, in and through the gospel, we have come to Christ. And that is so important, Peter is saying. We haven't been persuaded by some kind of new teaching. We haven't been won over to a fresh agenda. We have come to Christ. We know and love and worship and serve a person. And that should characterize every community of Christians scattered around the United States of America and throughout the world. We are people who know Christ. We're joined to Him. We're part of Him. We belong to Him. In Pauline language, we are in Him. Union with Christ is a glorious feature of the gospel. In fact, that is the distinguishing feature of the gospel. We are men and women to whom Christ is everything. Others... They've rejected him, haven't they? By definition, but not Christians. Now you can see, can't you, straight away how this would have been, these would have been very comforting words to those who were on the margins of society. Because as we read the whole of the book of Peter, it seems that we're not talking about overt persecution, whereby they were being, as it were, dragged off to prison or thrown to the lions or anything like that. But it was a subtle, insidious form of opposition. They were maybe beginning to leave their, lose their, their jobs. They were beginning to, to, to sense a, a sense of vilification from their neighbors. They were being uh, ostracized, left out of things. But things were beginning to heat up for them. Things were getting difficult. So Peter says to them, I know that you're feeling rejected, but let, remind, let me remind you of the Christ to which you've come. He was rejected too, wasn't he? He was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And you're chosen and precious too. Like like living stones. He was a living stone, and you, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. You see, he's reinforcing who they are in Christ. And his readers have to make a decision, don't they? Who do we allow to define our significance? Just as we in this culture in which we live have to make a decision. Who are we going to allow to define our significance and our identity? 
Do we give more weight to the opinion of those who have rejected Christ than we give to Christ himself? Because as the church of Jesus Christ, corporately and individually, you are in Christ. You are precious, chosen by God. You are his. You belong to him. What does it matter if the world hates you? What does it matter if the world despises you? What does it matter if the world robs you, as it were, or takes from you all of your privileges? What does it matter if all the privileges that the world give to Christians, such as tax breaks and, and, and so on, what does it matter if all of those are removed? What does it matter if there are certain offices that we can't hold or certain jobs that are precluded from us because of our convictions, certain convictions that we have on certain truths? What does it matter if we are chosen by God and precious to Him? If they do matter... It's because they matter too much. If Christ matters, then they won't matter at all. And then the third point, verses 9 to 10, which although relatively short in the structure of my sermon, is probably the pivotal point of the whole of the epistle. You'll be familiar with these words, won't you? But you are a chosen race. Remember who Peter is talking to. He's talking to small groups of Christians scattered around, people on the margins of society, people who are ostracized, people who are accounted as nothing, insignificant, worthless. And this is what he says to them. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a glorious identity, isn't it? Yes, I know the world hates you, but this is what God says of you. And he takes these terms, all of which come from the Old Testament, and all of which are just full of great significance, and he says, everything that was true there is true of you. I know that you might just be a handful of Christians just stuffed into somebody's back room, in some back street, in some out-of-the-way town somewhere, but... You, this is who you are. So everything that I said about Israel, everything I promised to Israel, all the promises that I gave to Israel, all the privileges that I bestowed upon them, all of them reside in you as this small household church. All of them reside in you as this relatively small church in a global sense of Christians meeting in this school in Bakersfield. So you can go make your way home today and say, hey, Sovereign Grace, Bakersfield, we are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for his own possession. That's true of us. Check us out. This is who we are. Isn't it glorious? You read Exodus, you'll see all those phrases there. You read Isaiah, you'll see them articulated there as well. And this is our identity. This is what we have been. This is who we are because we are elect strangers, elect exiles. 
This is how we thrive on the margins of society. Remind yourself of what is true of you according to God's word. But there's one other thing, isn't it, before we go? That is that we may proclaim the excellences of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This goes back to what we said at the beginning, doesn't it? Election isn't for our indulgence. We have been chosen for a purpose. And that purpose is that we might make Christ known. In order that, why are you all of these glorious statements that is true of you? Why is that true of you? So that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. How do you declare the praises of God? Well, you do it on a Sunday morning when you sing together. Of course you do. And people, when they come in who aren't Christians, will hear that. But that's not our primary means. And I love our gathered worship as the church of Jesus Christ. But not, that's not the primary way we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. The primary way we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness is by being this distinctive, standout kind of community characterized by sincere brotherly love that is men and women who love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's how we declare his praises. And so we've gone full circle, haven't we? See, God has placed you here for a purpose in this town of Bakersfield. God has placed you here at this time for a purpose. That is, in the United States of America in the 21st century. In the closing months of the Obama administration and with a new president on the horizon. God has placed you here for such a time as this so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because remember, once you weren't a people, but now you are. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. So therefore, live like it. I'm going to unpack that in more detail this afternoon at the, that, that, that meeting in terms of what that really looks like. But for now, let's just stay at this point. You declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light by being characterized by a sincere brotherly love, loving one another deeply from a pure heart. Wouldn't you love that to be true of you as, Baker, as Sovereign Grace Bakersfield? I don't know what it is about that group of Christians, but I tell you what, they sure do love one another. I don't know what goes on in their business meetings, but they sure do love one another. I don't get why they make the decisions that they do, but they real do, surely do love one another. Look at what's happening. You see people selling things so that they can meet those in need. Chad prayed, didn't he, for... The threat that is in the oil industry of people losing their jobs. What a great time to show the world how you love one another. What a great time to sell things so you can support one another. What a great time to eat into your savings so you can, so you can bless one another. What a great time just to live distinctively in the world around. That's my prayer for you because that's God's word to you. So let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you for this church here. I thank you for their gospel faithfulness. I thank you for their desire to serve you, please you, and be the people of God here. 
I thank you, Lord, for their commitment to the world around, to these unreached people groups. Thank you so much, Lord, for their investment in that. And I pray that you will bless them richly in all of those ventures. For the people that are going for training, the people that are going from training into the mission fields. And Father, all of these we pray that there might be great blessing. Your hand might be upon them. But Father, also here now, in this city of Bakersfield, may you equip them, call them, and, and, and empower them to be this distinctive community characterized by sincere brotherly love. To be known, Father, as a community of men and women who love one another earnestly from pure hearts. Lord, may that be the natural overflow and consequence of the gospel. Do them good, Lord. Let them shine brightly in the midst of this darkness so that Jesus will become more famous. Amen.